My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. So the 2024 Juno nominations are out now, and with one category in particular, there is a lot to talk about. The Junos has made some changes when it comes to the Indigenous music categories. Today on the podcast, how the Junos are handling the debate over who gets to claim indigeneity. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. This is Commotion. While the nominations for this year's Junos were announced yesterday, here's one of them. That is Kaween from Nimki and the Nanis off their album LFS5, just one of the acts up for traditional Indigenous artists or group of the year. It wasn't until 1994 that an Indigenous category was finally added to the Junos, and it was thanks in no small part to advocacy from Elaine Bombery and Curtis Johnny. This year marks the 30th anniversary of that decision and that addition. A lot has changed since then, including how nominees are selected. That is, as you can imagine, tied to a longer and contentious history around who gets to claim indigeneity as a musician. Of course, the Buffy St. Marie controversy is a case in point of this. So to talk about all of this, we've got Alan Grayeyes, Susan Blight, and Tristan Grant here, three indigenous people in the arts with their own stakes in this. Alan, Susan, Tristan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, sir. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Alan, maybe I'll start with you. How did you feel looking through this year's Juno nom- nominees in the Indigenous categories? Yeah, it's uh, again, it's great to have two categories now because it gives us an opportunity to have at least two voices on that stage every mm. year. Um, I gotta, I gotta say, I was, uh, I don't know some of the nominees, so I'm, I'm really interested uh, to take a listen to what they've been recording and putting out there. That's great, Susan. What about you? Well, that's just the thing is like you get an opportunity to be introduced to artists that you maybe haven't been listening to. But I also love to see like the the breadth of music that we're producing and the diversity of the artists that are nominated. I was I was really happy to see also all the Indigenous artists who are not even also in the Indigenous category. So it's it's kind of all over uh, the categories in Junos in general. Uh, Tristan, you've been exploring all kinds of Indigenous sounds lately. You've been the interim host of Reclaimed. Uh, any surprises for you in this year's nominees? I think my, my, really the biggest surprise is who haven't I played on Reclaim? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no, no real surprises. Um, you know, I love seeing all the representation, as you said, also in other categories as well. But it's looking pretty sharp, I must say. It's looking pretty good. What I like is uh, Tristan's like, I've heard of all these guys. I'm a guy, my finger's on the pulse, okay? <laughs> you, you're, all of you, you're sleeping on these people, which is great. Um, I, I got to ask you, um, 
Something that I'm really interested in is the way that we are, we've been framing this conversation in general. Um, I mentioned this year, this is the 30th anniversary of the first Indigenous category that was added to the Junos, and 30 years since this Indigenous artist won that, that first award for this album. That is Elders from Wapistan. It's off his 1993 album entitled Wapistan is Lawrence Martin. Wapistan was the first Indigenous artist to win a Juno in its inaugural Indigenous category. Alan, how big of a deal was this? How big of a moment was it when this happened? Well, I got to say I was only 14 at the time, okay, so I'm right. not that old. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yes. honestly, though, like representation in mainstream media is extremely important. I'm a believer that every stage gives us an opportunity to show Canadians that Indigenous people are just as special and have just as many possibilities as their loved ones. Yeah. And so I, like for me, it was incredible to see see us in a different light like up until that point all i really saw was um like us as the protester or the criminal or the or the politician and so to see mm. that you know we have we have opportunities on stage as well was was pretty important for me uh staying with you for a second alan you've been a part of the juno's indigenous category committee uh in the past what would you say has been the juno's biggest blind spot when it comes to valuing the contributions of indigenous musicians and understanding their place in music well, I don't think it's a blind spot just for the Junos. It's a blind spot for the Canadian music industry in general. Mm. And that's the uh, the treating of Indigenous people as just another equity-deserving group in Canada. I'm, I, I often reference the two-row wampum belt to, to illustrate the fact that, you know, we have our own uh, equity-deserving groups within our own row or our own canoe. And so if you, you look at the two-row wampum belt, one is Canadians and one, or one is Indigenous and one is Canadians. Mm -hmm. And, and again, we are unique and special. And so I think that's the blind spot for the music industry in general. And Susan, for you, how would you describe your relationship with the Junos as it relates to how they've thought about Indigenous artists in the past? Yeah, well, on the one hand, I think as an, a visual artist, art and music and Indigenous music always go together. And a lot yeah. of these musicians that we're talking about are already artists. Um, I was the host of a radio show called Indigenous Waves for many years and got to um, be a Juno juror as well. And um, it's just like, to me, it's um, an introduction to artists that you haven't heard. And there's just been so many memorable moments at the award show itself. Mm -hmm. Any memorable Juno moments for you that revolved around Indigenous artists? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I think about Jeremy Dutcher in 2019, yeah. taking that moment to, you know, to put forward some advocacy for a nation to nation relationship, as as Alan mentioned, as well as um, advocating for Wet'suwet'en land defenders. Mm -hmm. And then partly what was memorable is that he was played off stage, right? <laughs> and yes. it was like literally when he got yeah. to the word reconciliation. I hope to continue to share and use this platform to tell truth. We can all do better. Reconciliation, there we go. That's it. Thank you so much. They start playing the music, you know, and luckily at that time, Arkells, when they won, uh, gave Jeremy the space to finish that speech. But it was just such a, a really poignant moment and had a lot of meaning, I think, to it. I just want to tell people that uh, as you were describing that moment, Tristan was just shaking his head. But yeah. how do you how do you remember that moment, Tristan? Well, I remember how much it stood out. I mean, Jeremy is from my neck of the woods. You know, he he's uh, feels like a brother to me, right? I'm Mi'kmaq. He's Wallastook. Uh, 
And just to see that moment and be, wow, this person is from my my area and he's talking about this, but then, uh-oh, reconciliation, the dangerous word pops out and then the music plays and we're like, I feel like as Indigenous people, once the reconciliation popped up and then the music popped up, we just started shaking our heads like I did. And we are like, oh boy, here we go. But uh, kudos to Max from the Arkells for deciding to you know, give that space to Jeremy because it is so, so important mm-hmm. for us to have a platform like that and be able to speak about these issues that are true to us. Okay, I want us to keep talking, but also want us to hear some more music. So let's hear something from one of this year's Indigenous musicians up for a Juno. Why does my mind skip like a stone and I can't let go? I'm everywhere, but here and now. Why am I falling ahead like a crash never left? I'm anywhere, but here and now. Why does that is called Here and Now. That's from Asanabe, nominated in this year's Contemporary Indigenous Artist of the Year category. Tristan, what can you tell us about Asanabe's trajectory right now? I think it's been a really cool trajectory for him. I think that he's been making really good stuff. And um, I, I love how he's been actually recognized, you know, in the Indigenous community, but beyond. It feels like maybe there is some sort of change happening in terms of a sort of mainstream kind of recognition. And he's one of many artists that seem to be leading that charge. Uh, Alan, there's been changes in recent years in terms of uh, identifying who's eligible to be nominated within the Juno's Indigenous categories. Those changes are tied to, let's say, longstanding tensions around who gets to claim Indigenous identity as a musician. What were those most recent changes? Yeah, I think it was really important to move it from a genre category to a category that recognizes Indigenous people in music. Hmm. And so up until this point, a lot of the the... Um, confusion was around um, non-Indigenous people submitting albums that fit the genre category yeah. and being recognized uh, within our community. And, and so that, that's been the main change. And, and um, it's, it's been a long time coming. Uh, Tristan, when you see those changes, what do you make of those changes? I like it. I mean, you know, I, I do like the fact that you're you have to sort of have these community references and ties because I mean there's been a large conversation about people that claim to be indigenous and maybe they aren't, or maybe they have many vague sort of backgrounds to them. And you know, having a community that you claim and that you're a part of, I mean, if you ask any one of us here, I'm sure it's not really a difficult question to answer. <laughs> so yes. uh, I, I do like those changes. Uh, it's important to note that like these tensions are not new. They go back to actually back to 1994, right? To like when the Junos first started including Indigenous categories in these awards. Alan, there was a big controversy that year. Do you want to talk? I know you were 14, but you know all about this controversy. <laughs> what happened in 94? Well, what what I can recall is that Nancy Nash was nominated in the category because she had uh, a music that fit the genre criteria. And again, she not being an indigenous person, I I believe she she said that she was adopted into the George family. That's Chief Dan George. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of the confusion and controversy within uh, the identity debate comes from these alleged adoptions. And so, um, I, I, for me personally, I believe an adoption comes with a set of responsibilities to that family hmm. and not a set of entitlements. And I think too often um, these people believe that they're entitled to whatever opportunities are meant to level the playing field for Indigenous people in Canada. We should also say, Susan, that those tensions around musicians and the legitimacy of their Indigenous identity claims have persisted over the decades. Uh, Last year, an investigation into the Indigenous ancestry claims of Buffy St. Marie made those tensions, I think, worse. More recently, there have been investigations into other established musicians that are pretty well known. 
Susan, how are you feeling about all of this? How are you how are you thinking about all of it? Well, I, I think it's a really sensitive thing, yeah. you know, and coming from two other arenas where this is a really prominent issue, mainly visual art and academia. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a really sensitive thing, but it's like there are tensions, but there are also harms that are caused by that kind of fraud. You know, all of the artists and creatives who collaborate and people working alongside these artists who are who are exposed for this fraud. Um, are affected by that. Like yeah. Buffy has won this award, I think, three times or won a Juno three times in an Indigenous category. And it's like Buffy has um, this really great song with Tanya Tagak called, I think it's called You've Got to Run. Yeah. Tanya being a legitimate Indigenous artist, like how do we now, do we play that song? What is our relationship to that song now? Like these are the these are the effects of this. But this is also like an innate problem with the fact that our Indigenous nations since the Indian Act have not really had full control over our citizenship. Mm. Like this is a this is an, a problem that will keep happening until we have that control again um, and, and are able to have the self-determination, which a lot of nations are reclaiming to to talk about who belongs in our mm. nations. Alan, what about you? How are you thinking about this? Yeah, I, I, again, I think Susan mentioned the the idea of belonging, and I believe that there are people within our community, or there, there's indigenous people that are identifying as indigenous within my circle of friends that still belong in my circle of friends. But mm. being in my circle of friends doesn't mean that they're entitled to any of the opportunities and resources that are again meant to strengthen indigenous families. So mm. it's very uh, it's a very personal situation for for the people that are being called to account. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but I think like it's important for our generation to to work these things out and get them get them figured out so it's easier for the people following in our footsteps. Tristan, I can't imagine that it's been easy to host Reclaimed as these conversations are happening. How are you thinking about it? Yeah, I mean, I played Buffy, I think, once or twice before everything came out. And I yeah. then, and then, of course, that's uh, I had lots of conversations with family members and friends, and we were all kind of stunned and didn't know what to do next. But personally, yeah. I was like, okay, well, I'm believing it, and I'm you know, that's that's the way it is now, because I think for generations and decades now, there have been people that have been claiming to be indigenous and taking on that opportunity and those responsibilities away from communities that are actually part of the community and, and mm. are indigenous and, you know, taking up that space. I mean, there's a difference between being part of a community and collaborating as a non-Indigenous person with Indigenous people and then um, taking advantage of that and maybe spinning a narrative your way that benefits you as an Indigenous artist. Mm. The story of Indigenous musicians up until this point has been a constant fight to be heard and valued and just be Indigenous. And I want to bring it back to the Junos with that in mind. Final question for each of you today. Maybe I'll start with Alan on this one. What's one tangible thing that you think the Junos can do to better recognize Indigenous musicians and support them? Well, I, I've been saying this for a long time, and I just want a guaranteed spot on the live televised um, award show for an, an Indigenous act each year. I love that Like it was like so simple and direct. You're like, here's a simple thing that we can do, and you can do this literally right now. What do you, what do you think that yeah. would do um, if they guaranteed a spot? Again, I believe every stage gives us an opportunity to show Canadians we're just as special and have just as many possibilities as their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And so that stage reaches hundreds, if not thousands. It definitely reaches tens of thousands of people every year. And so, again, it's uh, it's a tool that we can use to to challenge stereotypes. Tristan, what about you? 
I think in the spirit of integration and sort of collaborating with indigenous, non-indigenous, and probably mending a lot of these tensions, um, a lot of the mis, you know, misinformation or uh, feelings of sort of distance that the indigenous community has with the rest of Canada, I think is lack of exposure, lack of contact. I think that mm. when I was growing up, that was definitely a part of it. People, you know, I lived on a reserve 10 minutes from town and people had never been there before and didn't yeah. understand what was going on over there. Like, like it was some alien world. Uh, so I just want to bounce off Alan's point and say, yeah, I think that's a great, great idea because, you know, the more we're around, the, the more people learn and then we're just part of the, the greater culture. Yeah, I, I like what you're suggesting because it sort of mirrors like what the Grammys have called like the Grammy moment, which is like when they always like pair a musician that people do know and with a, with a musician that people don't necessarily know. And they it becomes like an opportunity for both of them to just like reach a different audience. I'd love to see like that kind of combination. Susan, you get last word on this. How can the Junos um, improve in, on this front? I think that they need to they, they have to keep nominating Indigenous artists across the board in mm. all categories that they are qualified for. So this is something that Jeremy Dutcher called for in 2019 and artists like the Hallucination have been calling for for years, which yeah. is any any category that we are qualified for, we, we should be nominated for. I think Jeremy said in 2019, our music is not niche and it isn't. It's a part of the fabric of the country that we live in. And we, as Alan mentioned and Tristan, we have a lot to contribute. Mm. We just need the opportunity to show it. Susan, Alan, Tristan, I, I appreciate you guys being here. Thank you so much for your time. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Alan Greyaz is a festival director for the Sakewe Festival and a self-proclaimed helper in the music industry. He's based in Winnipeg. Susan Blight is an artist and academic at the at OCAD University in Toronto. And Tristan Grant is a musician and interim host of the CBC program Reclaimed. He's based in Fredericton. By the way, the 2024 Junos take place in Halifax. That's going to be on March 24th. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decoder Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. My name is Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud and you are listening to Commotion. Listen, it is officially Fashion Week season. New York Fashion Week gets underway in just a couple of days. And I don't know if you've noticed, but something has shifted in the past decade or so. If you look closely at these fashion shows, yeah, you'll still see uh, a lot of the famous people that you're used to seeing. But you also see a lot of social media influencers sitting in the front rows. Gone are the days when all of those seats were mostly only filled with celebrities and top fashion editors. So to talk about this, we reach fashion writer Jean-Luca Rousseau. I started off by asking him who he's been seeing in the front rows. Yeah, so it's definitely a mix. I would say we have to look at kind of fashion month as a whole on a sliding scale. And so Paris Fashion Week, that's kind of the highest of the fashion weeks, followed mm -hmm. by then uh, Milan, London, and New York kind of at the bottom in terms of status. And so at Paris Fashion Week, you're going to see 
still a lot of high fashion people, but what you're going to see is a curated group of top influencers and top celebrities who represent this younger audience. Paris Fashion Week will probably have the least in terms of Gen Z influencers and celebrities, but you'll see that trend throughout, and then that will kind of increase throughout the fashion weeks until we get to New York, and then they'll kind of dominate the New York Fashion Week. I uh, I can't tell if I'm putting this on you or you're like, New York, so gauche with the way they invite all these influencers to the front row, or if that's just how people in the fashion industry sort of talk about this. Am I projecting that or is that your also your opinion? It's definitely just the way fashion kind of looks at fashion weeks. They all kind okay. of serve a different purpose yeah. um, and they all ultimately have a different level of status. Fashion is all about status and each one is different. And ultimately it's about where designers choose the show. We're at the point now where a lot of the top end designers are showing in Europe only. They won't show in New York. New York is the most accessible of the fashion weeks. And that's why we see the most amount of kind of influencers and younger stars there. Is that accessible derogatory or is that accessible? Like that's great that it's accessible, but also kind of means that like sometimes people who don't have business being in this space are there also. I would say it's definitely a mixture of both. Okay. I, think that's, <laughs> that's right. I think that's why we definitely see a lot of articles come out that are like Fashion Week is dead. And oftentimes they're referring <laughs> to New York Fashion Week because it's the purpose is no longer there. And I think Fashion Week itself is, for reasons that I don't necessarily agree with, it has always been very exclusive. And so I think now yeah. that that's been broken down in New York and also starting to be broken down in the other markets as well, people always question, well, then what is the purpose if it's not to be this very exclusive time of year? Now, like when I think about my relationship with influencers, I'm not sure that I turn to them for fashion, but maybe that's just me and my relationship with them. Why would fashion brands want influencers in the front row? Yeah, especially if we're talking about kind of younger influencers, yeah. their audiences can't afford these clothes. They're yeah. not going to be buying them. But it's more about playing the long game here. They're looking at the longevity of their brand's impact. And so Gen mm. Z might not be able to buy these couture garments right now, but in 10 years, they will likely be running the fashion industry. And we're very well aware of that. And so right now, it's kind of about brand recognition. Having Zendaya in the front row is going to get her... 30 million plus followers to know that brand's name, to pay attention to them. Uh, and essentially brands want to influence these people to care about them, even if they can't afford them right now. Mm -hmm. And these Gen Z influencers and celebrities are the ones who can help them do that. I think the, the stunning thing about this for me is that like, if the return, right, is um, not having to spend as much money on marketing later because people already know your brand, you know, when these um, younger folks end up, you know, getting older and having money, um, being able to afford these brands. Uh, the numbers are astonishing. I mean, the latest annual report from the business of fashion and McKinsey and Company say that brands are spending billions of dollars on influencer marketing. Does that does that add up for you in terms of like the return that they'll get from this later on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, of course, it plays to the longevity here. But also then remember that a majority of fashion trends nowadays are started primarily by Gen Z uh, and the social media outlets right. that they use. And so even though Gen Z can't afford a garment from Scaparelli, right, they might be inspired by it, make their own version, it goes viral. And then the people who can't afford it are going to follow suit by buying the actual garment. Mm -hmm. And I think what we see is the older generations, ultimately, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, are buying into these Gen Z trends at their higher, more elevated levels. So it is oftentimes money well spent. I, I got to say, another thing that jumps out of this latest report is that people are looking for influencers who are, and the quote is, relatable, fun, authentic. 
I don't think of any of the high fashion brands as relatable. Maybe they're fun, uh, certainly authentic, but there's nothing inherently relatable about this. So does it does it track for you that they're looking for influencers who are those things, even though by almost necessity, you know, to be a, a, a high fashion establishment, you are in the business of being a little bit exclusionary? Yeah, it's it's an interesting topic. I think for sure, at a large scale, yes. I think designers and brands are looking for influencers who have those really relatable personalities yeah. uh, and personas online so that people can feel very connected to them. Uh, yeah. It is interesting, though, because it's not always that way. There are still fashion brands who live in this very exclusionary mindset who don't want those influencers. They only want people who are kind of very generic when it comes to fashion, who stick to this very exclusive mindset. But mm -hmm. as a whole, we're seeing kind of that move towards wanting people to represent your brand who have these very uh, kind of energetic and bold and specific personalities. And it's all about this topic about kind of uh, inspiration versus aspiration. Mm. For so long, the fashion used this topic of aspiration. They wanted people to aspire to look a certain way, to dress a certain way, to have a certain amount of wealth. And now we've changed the model at, at large to be about inspiration, where we're not striving yeah. for their body type or their level of wealth, but we're inspired to cultivate a life or cultivate a, a closet that reflects them or that is inspired by them. And so this mindset change has really brought a lot of benefit, but I think it's reflected in the influencers that we see elevated nowadays, as opposed to kind of the fashion insiders who got the front rows about 10 years ago. I like that. I like that frame of aspiration versus inspiration. The idea that, you know, the aspiration, the the sell is like you want to be them. You want to be sort of like them. Whereas the inspiration is maybe their freedom inspires you to pursue your own freedom, even though yours will, you know, likely will look quite different than, than theirs. Uh, in the past, you had only the most venerable fashion editors and, you know, the, the, the A-list celebrities sitting in those front rows. You know, how does this old guard feel about the shift would you say not good i would say okay. i definitely right. don't think they're they're taking it lightly and i say this as someone who worked in fashion and tended fashion week firsthand there is justification for that, right? You have these people who have worked their entire lives to get to the front rows, to have these positions in fashion, who are then kind of just being kicked to the back for these people who maybe went viral online and are suddenly kind of being elevated as these icons. Uh, and there's many layers to it as well. I mean, there's you look at the Devil Wears Prada, right? Those front rows there depicted in the movie all look the same. You had people yeah. in these past few years of fashion who come from these very different marginalized backgrounds who had to fight to get to that seat. And now you're kind of kicking them out for someone who just went viral for dancing on TikTok. It's a very kind of difficult situation for people to grasp, but it's particularly difficult for those of marginalized communities, people who come from black and brown, uh, black and brown backgrounds, who are plus size, who have never really had a space in fashion before. Uh, it's difficult to grasp this because it, it reminds us that at the end of the day, you can put in all this work possible, but the kind of fashion at whole is going to operate about money and whatever they think is going to bring in the most money for them. Isn't it in a way, though, like, aren't they just influencers, those, this old guy that we're talking about, aren't they just influencers of a different kind? Like, maybe, basically, they were just the influencers of the era of glossy fashion magazines, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of the same model, but just with the new people at the forefront now. And so now they've just kind of been replaced by a very different kind of person. I think the difficult thing here is the people they're replaced by are not necessarily people with a fashion background or understanding or history. Hmm. So the question is, why are they the ones to then have these positions when they don't have kind of the knowledge or experience to back them up? John Luca, it's been a delight. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for your time. Of course. Thank you so much.
Gianluca Russo is a fashion writer and the author of The Power of Plus. New York's Fashion Week opens this Friday and runs through February 14th. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm glad that he's back. That is a bit of Daniel Caesar and Let Me Go. Maybe you caught a bit of Charlotte Cardin music over on Q this morning. She's the most nominated musician at this year's Junos. And right behind her are Talk and this artist right here, Daniel Caesar. They both got five nominations each. Daniel is up for fan choice as well as single of the year, album of the year, artist of the year, and contemporary R&B recording of the year. That is a lot of categories. Congratulations to Daniel. Also, congratulations to all the nominees for the full list, cbcmusic.ca. And that is it for the podcast today. My name is Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. Hey, I'm going to be here tomorrow. If you're going to be here, love to see you then. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.